This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie morning, the 3rd of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. We've lived with coronavirus for a year and a half now. Our lived experience teaches us that with each wave, case numbers rise, hospitals fill up, critical care comes under pressure and people die. We will never forget that over 5,000 of our fellow citizens in this state have already died from covid The Delta variant is highly transmissible, so we must continue to remain vigilant throughout the pandemic. And therefore, for the moment, uh, we need to have some safeguards at our disposal in case we need to act quickly in the event of the threats and challenges that COVID-19 continues to throw at us. The Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday, just as Neffet was about to announce the highest number of new cases recorded in one day since the 19th of January. This evening, the number of cases that will be announced uh, will be in excess of 3,700. We know that we have a very significant increase in cases across all age groups. Indeed, the case prevalence we're looking at at the moment is higher than at any point, than at the very highest peak uh, in... In January. The number of new cases uh, that was subsequently announced yesterday was 3,726, almost 4,000 new cases of COVID 19. We have hospitals that are getting fuller with COVID patients. As a result of this, and as a result of the people having to go into ICUs, elective surgery for other men, women, and children is being cancelled. The situation right now is serious. Minister Donnelly, let's speak to Dr Ian Cunahan, respiratory consultant and clinical director for the Department of Medicine at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. Dr Cunahan is also the COVID lead for the hospital. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us once again on the programme this morning. If we look at the impact of those figures, which is an 18% increase on the number of new cases last week, nationally 493 people are in hospital because of COVID and 90 are in ICU. What does that mean locally? 
Um, good morning, Michael. Uh, I guess locally what that means for us is that we've got 31 patients um, who are in the hospital uh, with COVID. Um, so that has a significant impact on the overall um, capacity of the, the hospital. That's, um, you know, our largest ward, which is currently the COVID ward, is, is a 31-bedded ward. So that would be full um, just with COVID patients. In the ICU, we've got five patients currently with COVID. Um, we have a nine-bedded ICU, so that's more than half the ICU uh, full uh, with uh, COVID patients. We don't have any ICU beds, so I mean that has a knock-on impact on how we're able to deliver, deliver care um, for all of our patient population. Um, I think it's not just COVID, as you've been hearing. Um, uh, you know, on the on the news recently, we're coming into winter months and. Um, presentations to the hospital with with all uh, other general illnesses are up as well and uh, we had just we've just come out of October which is the busiest month in the history of the hospital um, for presentations uh, to the emergency department with over 6,000 presentations I think that's the first time we've ever gone over 6,000 presentations um, for to unscheduled to the hospital in a month and that's 14 uh, percent up compared with 2019. Okay, and we're going into a, a winter where I imagine staff are already exhausted and uh, the pressure has uh, been unprecedented. Uh, how concerned are you uh, about the months ahead? Well, um, I guess uh, I'm very concerned at the moment. I think it's been pleasing to hear that NIAC has recommended uh, booster vaccines uh, for staff. I think uh, not. it's not just that we're worried about staff becoming ill with this, it's, it's the impact of staff being uh, on COVID-related leave. Uh, at the moment, we've 80 staff uh, who are out on COVID-related leave in the hospital. The majority of those are uh, nursing staff. Um, and so uh, that has an impact on our ability to, you know, to, um, to, to staff the wards. And we've nursing staff um, and the rest of the staff in the hospital who have been working incredibly hard over the last almost two years now. And again, we're, we're stepping up and essentially asking them to work harder and there's only so many times uh, you can do that before people become completely burnt out. So that's 80 staff who have COVID or have been close contacts with somebody who has had COVID. Uh, and uh, can you put that into perspective for us? Uh, what kind of uh, percentage of uh, the staffing quota is that? Um, that is, it's, it's, it'll, be, it'll be less than 5% of the okay. staff, I think. Okay, yeah. but... Uh, it's, it's, I guess it's 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 predominantly frontline staff, so it's the, the biggest group are the are within the the nursing uh, the nursing staff. So it has an impact on our ability to to staff wards. It means we're asking nurses to to do a, extra shifts. It means when our ICU is full, we sometimes have patients who are a bit sicker on the on the wards because um, we're having to manage uh, higher acuity at a ward level. So that usually requires. Um, more staff on input at that level so it becomes uh, challenging to manage and as I say it's essentially just asking people to do more at a time when they've been uh, really doing as much as they can over the last uh, year yeah. and a half or more. Okay, you've an entire ward as you say, 31 beds and 5 beds in ICU, a total of 36 beds taken up in the hospital with people who are suffering from COVID-19 uh, what would be happening with those 36 beds? Would they be used uh, if uh, they weren't uh, being taken up by those people with COVID? Well, I don't re- recall a, a time in the hospital where we ha- ever had 
uh, an empty ward or uh, free beds like that. So I think um, almost certainly uh, there are there are still people who are um, you know nervous about coming into the hospital at the moment. Mm. It's a challenge. If we've no ICU beds now, I, I, I don't work on the surgical side, but some of the elective surgery. Uh, patients will require to have uh, an ICU bed. And I take it that would be some very serious uh, operations at that, uh, maybe uh, bypasses or tumours being removed or colectomies or uh, something like that that might require ICU afterwards. I, yeah, I guess, yep, yeah. cancer surgeries uh, potentially, yep. Yeah. We don't do any vascular surgery here, but we, we do um, do some cancer surgery and larger um, you know, uh, bowel surgeries that may, may require uh, ICU care afterwards if the patients have comorbidities, yeah. So those those things will have to, I imagine, be rescheduled if there's no ICU bed on the day. Okay. And what can you tell us uh, about the people uh, who you're treating with COVID? Uh, is there a, a profile uh, that uh, you could uh, say is uh, general in, in terms of uh, patients who are presenting to you? Um, I think that Predominantly, the patients are patients who are very sick or in the ICU, or the vast majority of them are unvaccinated. Um, most of the patients on the ward, uh, but maybe not quite as high a proportion, um, are unvaccinated. Um, and the patients who have received vaccines, uh, you know, are double vaccinated, uh, a lot of them have some. Uh, reason for why they mightn't have responded as well to the vaccination, whether that's that they're on some medication that suppresses their immune system or they have an underlying medical condition that um, compromises their immune system. So I guess those are the people that NIAC are trying to target in terms of giving a booster um, to first. Um, and I guess it's about keeping that message out there about of how valuable um, a vaccination is in the first place. Certainly, mm. The demographic in our ICU is very different to before uh, in terms of people, most people up in ICU, the unvaccinated people have no medical problems prior to this. Um, they're not particular, they're not overweight, they're not diabetic, um, which was uh, the typical uh, person that we were seeing, seeing coming into the ICU in previous waves. Okay, uh, and when people... They're not, that, they're not elderly, they're, they're in their 40s and 50s. But they haven't been vaccinated? Okay, uh, and if people have been vaccinated and they end up needing hospital care, uh, what is their circumstance, or is uh, there a way of talking about that in general in terms of the people you're seeing? Um, I, th- I think it's it's variable. It's, it's depending. Some of them have, uh, you know, either underlying. A couple of them have underlying lung diseases or, um, can you know, cancers. Um, so they're we're managing both the some of them they have some pneumonia and requ- oxygen requirements or um, uh, looking at uh, m- managing the, the, their, com- their comorbidities as well when they're unwell with COVID. Okay, but generally speaking, would it be true to say that people who are young, fit and well, uh, if they've been fully vaccinated, are, are not uh, coming before you? Who don't, They don't need hospital care, in other words. Exactly. Okay. And you have an awful lot of people in there, as you said. You have a whole ward, uh, more than half of uh, ICU taken up by people with COVID, uh, 36 beds uh, that could be given to people uh, who need very serious operations uh, and so on, and the vast majority of them not vaccinated. Uh, and uh, 
that could be prevented uh, quite easily, I take it, or is uh, that too simple a conclu- conclusion? Um, no, I don't think it's too simple a conclusion. You know, it's just about how to, it, it seems it's very difficult to convince people um, who have decided not to get vaccinated um, to to become vaccinated just based on this data. They, they don't seem to too keen to listen to it. Um, and obviously there's a lot of misinformation around vaccinations um, mm. out there and I guess people are frightened uh, about vaccination. I mean, I think the the saddest thing that, that I'm seeing are people, you know, uh, children who've convinced their parents not to get vaccinated because they're worried about it and, and seeing their parents come in um, very sick with COVID. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think it, it, it really is, it's a no-brainer in terms of um, trying to prevent both you and uh, and loved ones uh, ending up uh, in hospital very sick in ICU um, or potentially uh, dying from this disease, which we can't completely prevent with vaccination. But you know, if you've, we can we can almost completely prevent death from from uh, COVID with vaccination. Okay. Uh, what would you like? to see happen uh, to help you and your colleagues in the hospital and in other hospitals uh, around the country as we uh, continue dealing with this crisis. Uh, there's a, a lot of concern, I think, uh, about contact tracing and the lack of it in particular with uh, school children. Uh, there's been concern around Halloween with young and older uh, people for that matter, nightclubs opening, uh, indeed uh, mass gatherings like uh, the rally in Navin last weekend uh, to do with the hospital there. Are, are, are they issues that would be of concern to you? Yes, I think so. I think we've seen before um, at times like last um, you know, December when complacency levels um, increased, uh, we had dramatic increases in the number of cases. I think what we're seeing with this these new Delta variant is that while the, there's good protection um, from getting it uh, with, the, with the vaccine, and um, uh, but if you do acquire it and you've been vaccinated, the, your, your household contacts do seem to have quite a high risk of getting it. And you do seem to be able to transmit the virus uh, similarly uh, to if you're unvaccinated. So um, that you know that is a concern as uh, complacency uh, increases. I think. Most of what we can do is around personal responsibility. Um, I don't think that we can keep the country closed down uh, indefinitely. I think it's very challenging to provide um, the resources that we need um, for for the hospitals for for us because we don't know how long this is going to go on for. Um, we all hope this was going to be over a long time when mm. at this stage when it started. Um, and, and providing the resource that we need takes a long time because it requires training staff over periods of time. It requires um, infrastructure that usually takes um, years to, um, to plan and build. So uh, I think the most important thing is about the personal responsibility and trying to limit the transmission in the community and people who are symptomatic getting, continuing to get tested, um, isolating themselves when they're at home. Uh, or isolating themselves if they're positive or their symptoms and haven't had a test yet. Can I ask you about the variant? Uh, because, I mean, we started off uh, with a, a very different uh, type of coronavirus in March of 2020 and uh, the various variants 
and mutations uh, since then. I think we have a kind of sub-mutation at the moment. Uh, as you say, there's the Delta variant uh, that people have become very familiar with. I think they're talking about the Delta Plus now, uh, the uh, Department of Health Northeast suggesting uh, that uh, that, or if you prefer, Delta sublineage AY42 is in the community. Small cases they say so far. What's your experience of that? Because they also say that that's ten to fifteen percent more transmissible than the Delta itself. Yeah, I guess you know in in the real time we don't know what um, variants people have. Um, we get a test that's positive or negative. Um, I know that uh, a proportion of those uh, go on for um, whole genome sequencing to determine uh, what the lineage is, and you know, it's 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 not it's not something that's particularly um, uh, something that, that that has changed the disease pattern hugely for people. Um, for us, we don't notice a huge difference in the disease. It does feel like um, as time has gone on that the um, that it is more transmissible, but that's just uh, my sense of it, um, and I, I'm not sure how it must. I'm not sure how uh, accurately they can determine that this new um, uh, Delta Plus variant is 10 to 15 percent more transmissible. But you know, I, I I don't doubt it. It certainly feels like um, uh, that the you know even despite vaccination, the households uh, the sort of secondary attack rate within the household is uh, quite high. Okay, well, as the COVID lead in the Lords, uh, Dr. Coonan, uh, you've obviously had responsibility for many of the people listening to us uh, who've uh, come under with uh, COVID and come before you and uh, indeed needed uh, your care and the care of uh, your colleagues for that matter. And I'm sure you've probably lost uh, some uh, along the way, some of our, our neighbours, friends uh, and family members uh, in terms of people listening to us uh, this morning, as the Minister said, uh, were acutely aware and will never forget all of the deaths in uh, this country uh, but uh, I suppose that's the history that we've lived with as I said uh, at the outset that perhaps we should learn from uh, is there something that uh, you'd like uh, to say to our listeners uh, because I'm sure uh, that they, if they haven't been under your care as yet they don't want to be under your care under this circumstance uh, what would you say to them uh, to prevent that from happening I, I think the important thing is like you say is People often come into me and they're saying, you know, uh, how how did this happen? Um, and uh, obviously they're very frightened uh, when they come in. Although thankfully most of them uh, recover completely. Um, the, the the important things, I mean, the hand washing is just. I, I just don't see it happening when I'm out um, shopping, um, uh, going into shops, uh, cleaning cleaning your hands. Uh, wearing a mask that's covering your nose and your mouth. I mean, there's a reason why we swab people's noses. It's where the virus is. So if your mask isn't covering your nose, it's probably not very effective. Um, and, uh, you know, just uh, being sensible in terms of uh, being in large groups of people indoors, uh, particularly not attending any events like that if you have symptoms. Okay. Thank you indeed for taking time out of your very busy day to speak to us uh, this morning. It's much appreciated. That's uh, Dr. Ian Cunahan, Respiratory Consultant and Clinical Director for the Department of Medicine in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, where Dr. Cunahan is the COVID lead. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, thanks uh, to Tom, who's been on the phone to us. Uh, Tom uh, says uh, that when 
He's hearing what uh, Dr. Cunahan has to say about uh, the situation in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. He's wondering how long it's going to take before action is taken. Is the government going to wait until all of the ICU beds are taken up with COVID patients before implementing restrictions to stop the rising number of COVID cases? Any of us could need an ICU bed for a non-COVID reason, but we may not get one if this trend continues. Thank you indeed, Tom. I think it was clear listening to Dr. Cunahan uh, that the situation wouldn't be as bad uh, if uh, people had been vaccinated. Uh, they may end up sick, they may end up in hospital, but there wouldn't be as many people in hospital, they wouldn't be as sick, and uh, it certainly uh, would take the pressure off ICU because uh, over half the beds in ICU in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda is taken up with COVID patients at the moment and the vast majority of people there and in the hospital have not been vaccinated. Mairead is in Drogheda and she says, is there not a case to be made for all of us getting a booster vaccine? Why wait around? Thank you indeed uh, for that uh, as well. Uh, Somebody else uh, says, uh, can you ask uh, about uh, getting sick from the vaccine? It's not possible to get sick from the vaccine uh, unless um, there's some... Uh, odd problem um, you should get medical advice if you have uh, any concerns about that uh, 90% of the population have uh, been vaccinated uh, and there's no problem It's the, pro- the problem is with the people who haven't been vaccinated they're getting very very sick some of them are dying uh, somebody else uh, Deirdre says people need to get vaccinated uh, I don't know where it's going to end. Navin Hospital is needed big time and they should have a pop-up centre in Navin and in Kells. Uh, somebody else uh, saying, do you know what bugs me about people who won't get vaccinated but then they get COVID and then they expect the doctors and the nurses to look after them? Yeah, well, I suppose that's uh, the nature of it. Uh, they're always right. <laughs> I think that's the one thing we've learned about the people who won't get vaccinated. They're the kind of people who's always right. They'll tell you black is white and so on. Anyway, uh, let's uh, turn our attention to COP92 just for a moment uh, because uh, the Taoiseach made a, a big announcement yesterday. We're going to help some of the poorest people in the world to meet their climate obligations by increasing our annual donation uh, to an international fund to 225 million euro a year. Those of us in the developed world, those who have frankly contributed most to the problems that confront us, all have an obligation to support those who are most acutely challenged by their consequences. Ireland accepts that obligation. And in support of achieving the 100 billion target, I'm therefore pleased to announce today that Ireland will more than double its contribution to developing countries so that we are delivering at least 225 million a year by 2025. As leaders, if we are to bring people with us on this journey of a life... Nine minutes of time. We must also recognise and respect the real anxiety that many people feel when confronted by such an enormous challenge. Our young people worry that there will be no worthwhile future for them to inherit. Workers worry that their jobs will disappear, leaving them without a livelihood. Consumers already feeling the impact of energy price rises feel that the transition would be too costly for them to bear. In response, I say I will do everything in my power, working with all of the leaders here today to make sure that that is not so. That's the Taoiseach Michal Martin saving the planet in Glasgow, giving €225 million a year to the world's poorest countries in order to help them to meet uh, some of uh, their climate targets. Uh, The Taoiseach also 
uh, committing yesterday to uh, reducing methane by 30%. We'll be talking about that a, a little bit later on, how the Taunashe, uh was of the view that that uh, figure will be 10% rather than 30% a, a little bit later on. Uh, but uh, we'll also have more from COP26 a little bit later in the programme today as well. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, a report to regulate what's on the internet was published yesterday. The Joint Committee on Tourism, Culture, Arts, Sport and Media publishing its report on pre-legislative scrutiny of the general scheme of the Online Safety and Media Regulation Bill 2020 to give us its full title. There's 30, 33 recommendations in this. The chair of that committee is Fianna Fáil TD for Kevin Monaghan, Neve Smith, who's on the line with us. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You recommend establishing an online safety commissioner that will be welcomed by most who would deal with complaints uh, in terms of illegal and harmful content. Uh, Could you define what that is? What is illegal and harmful content? Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Um, I'm delighted we're, we're having this conversation. You're taking an interest in this important piece of pre-legislative scrutiny. I mean, the the um, bill itself is to introduce a media commission, which will it replace the broadcasting authority, and I suppose the most important piece for the ordinary person on the street, and, and I suppose where they feel most affected is with an online safety commissioner. Uh, and as you quite rightly said, that is to address the harmful content that we see on social media and I suppose just to put it in terms that people can really grasp you know LMFM broadcasters our national papers, our local papers, they all have very specific standards to reach before they publish an article or before you broadcast uh, a piece like we're doing today. But it's not the same on social media and I suppose parents will be acutely aware of just how um, how free it is in terms of what can be said, the dissemination mm. of misinformation, fake news, all of that. And I suppose that was kind of the crux, I suppose, and, and at the heart and soul of what the members of this committee were addressing, is to protect young people in particular, but to protect anybody mm. who engages in social media. Because, like, But, but from um, what? And I think we all know the answer, but uh, in order to answer the question definitively, you need to have a definition of what is harmful and uh, illegal. Have you got such a definition? Well, we don't, and that, that's not the job of the committee. The job mm. of the committee is to come up with recommendations towards the bill, and that will, I'm sure, come forward from the from the minister's perspective when she brings forward mm. the actual bill itself and its full and some uh, content to the House Speaker Office. But I mean, disinformation, harmful content. We're talking about things like gambling. We're talking about things where, um, you know, we know tracking and profiling of children and young people can be done on social media. So they're actually targeted for things like gambling. Mm. They're targeted for things like eating disorders. They're targeted for alcohol, they're targeted for junk food <clears throat> and these are the things that we are trying to address and ensure that more importantly the Online Safety Commissioner actually has teeth, that they have a, a legal and I suppose independent view of content that actually goes on social media yeah. that the platforms are firstly given the opportunity to attract, withdraw or take down information that is misleading or that is targeting. Uh, if they don't do that then the Commissioner has I suppose a legal ob- obligation um, to go and actually take on these social giants to actually, you know, as I said, give them the opportunity to withdraw the information. But if they don't do that, that they, it can be withdrawn for them and that they can finally face legal fines. Mm. Yeah, but, I mean, people are interested in gambling, for example. That's one of uh, the examples you used. Uh, there's nothing illegal about gambling. Uh, where's the problem with that or why well, would it fall under this? It, it, 
it is the sinister way th- these things are done online, Michael. And I think mm. anybody who's, who has uh, who, who's online themselves know that if you check um, a, a website or a Facebook page, even even if you're having a conversation, I've noticed that myself, if you're having a conversation about particular things where it might be something as innocent as decorating your house, the next thing is you'll see Facebook and the likes popping um, um, advertisements mm. popping up on your phone. Oh, I like that. I think that's great. I, I mean, you're talking well, about co- you're talking about you're, you're talking about cookies and algorithms and so on, and it means exactly. that I don't see ads for pornography or gambling yeah, or stuff yeah, like that. I see yeah. ads for things that I'm interested in, and I, I, I like that. I always say I always. Say say yes to all cookies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's the problem. And I mean, the, the social media giants, if anybody does, and we heard like mm. some really harrowing accounts, we heard from young people themselves that are the Facebook users that are, and I'm not just, you know, sticking with Facebook on this. We yeah. have had them all in. We've had TikTok, we've had no, Twitter, I, yeah. and we've had young people in who No, I understand. But, it, but, but like that, if I was interested in gambling and I was saying yes to all cookies, I'd get ads for gambling. And I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd be happy with that as well because I'm, I'd be interested in gambling. And, and that's my right and my entitlement it's perfectly legal yeah absolutely mm. but it's it's the more sinister level to this that mm. we're trying but, but to but that's address. what i'm asking you uh, how how do you how do you define what is harmful well i mean you know gambling you know um targeting young people on you know who may be suffering with eating disorders mm. you know and, and and pornography as you quite rightly said i mean mm. they're not things that should be children particularly should be easily exposed okay, but you might be interested in slimming you might have you, you know and i'm and, and yeah. I'm, not, I'm not arguing the point with you i'm just saying that this is a very difficult sphere it is, and, and, and and i take it that you'd have things like bullying uh, which could be called yeah. name calling so where does yeah. that begin and end because yeah. somebody might be offended if they said i think you're a member of fina fall or a member of finnegale or whatever you know uh, whereas other people might be delighted at, at that uh, so you you need clear well, lines really, and, and yeah. definitions for these things don't you absolutely and that will be the role of the online safety commissioner um to, to actually achieve that and to ensure that they have the roles and the powers to, I suppose, number one, as you define what is disinformation, what is harmful content, that will be, the devil in the detail will be, I suppose, mm. um, curated, if you like, by the Media Commission and by the Online Safety Commissioner. But this is a huge step, Michael, in, I suppose, taking control. And I and I say, when I say taking control, I mean it in the best sense possible, that it isn't the Wild mm. West that it is. And apart from that, I mean, it has undermined journalism. It ha- is undermining democracy mm. when you've seen what's happening in other oh, countries. And, and there's no argument with that at all, Niamh. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, uh, th- this type of, uh, of approach is needed. Uh, but mm. how will it work I- in practice? Uh, I mean, uh, there's an awful lot of okay. problems, uh, I think, well, in relation to COVID, as you say, about misinformation, just yeah. a, as an example. But you talk about LMFM. We can't go on and say there's no such thing as COVID or you're going to end up with a microchip yeah. in your arm if uh, yeah. you end up getting the vaccine. And we can't do that because it's wrong. Uh, and uh, we're licensed uh, as broadcasters, so we'd be in breach of our license if we were giving out that sort of fake news and wrong information, mm. dangerous information, uh, mm. and so on. Uh, but it's different if somebody is on the internet uh, and they're on their own Facebook page and they're saying something. Uh, I mean, there, there's no license, there's no contract. Uh, you're down to the providers. And when you talk about something like Facebook, you're talking about something like 400 million users. Absolutely. And, and you, 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 like, you obviously are very supportive of the argument. But just to say two things, OK, we actually, as part of our deliberations, heard from the e-safety commissioner in Australia who has done this, who has this up and running, who has got a team of people in there with the expertise 
to, uh, to to follow this through and to, I suppose, bring guidelines, to bring a standard of what is acceptable and what's not on social media giants and on um, on the on the online World Wide Web, if you like. And it is working. And people need to know that, like LMFM and all the other broadcasters, that there are standards. And there are standards that are acceptable and not acceptable. And that is the whole crux of all of this, to make sure that there is, I suppose, that it isn't the Wild West that it currently is. And as you've said yourself, you have certain standards to reach. That is not the case with the Facebooks and the Twitters. At the moment, if a parent has a complaint about a child, and I'm, I'm using that example because I think it's something we can relate to mostly, they get onto Facebook. Facebook will say, well, we'll see if it reaches our community standards. Now, I've experienced this myself. Their community standards, I can tell you, they have a very, very high bar for that to, re- to, to actually breach their community standards. The experience of most people is nothing breaks their community standards. So therefore, self-regulation is no regulation. And that's what we are trying to do in here, that we have across the board regulation, standards and guidelines that ha- must be met by the social giants, by everybody involved in online media, uh, that people can go on, that, and young people, that it's a safe space to be in. Because mm. we do accept it is part of life now. That's just it. Mm. Uh, it can it can be a pleasant place let's be honest it has done a huge amount of good let's be honest about that too in the sense that it's kind of opened up connections for people it's put people in contact oh, and yeah. it's easier it's supposed so. to, yeah. to to uh, communicate that way but it has a negative side to that and we can't continue to ignore that and, and in terms of child protection I suppose the easiest way to protect them from the internet is to keep them off the internet uh, and you're suggesting a, a minimum age uh, for a lot of these sites but a lot of these sites have minimum age but the problem is that the child self-declares they join up and exactly. a 10 year old says I'm yeah. 20 years of age Yeah, yeah. well listen I, I listened to Mary Aiken and, and I suppose she is the expert in all of this um, this area and she talks about the, the use and introduction of artificial intelligence to address exactly what you're saying I mean it's very hard to, to verify that so I think the bill will have when it's presented to the House of Bureaucracy it will have to go a long long way in terms of detail to make sure that this actually has teeth that this actually works uh, because if it doesn't have and, and the one thing I actually have said is about the individual complaint mechanism and that's the provision within the bill that will allow I suppose people who have a complaint to go to the online safety commissioner to be actually able to have somebody to make a complaint to because as you said yourself if you see something that's defamatory if you Mm. see something that's misleading if you see something that's fake news there's nowhere to go other than to ring the head office of Facebook or make a complaint by, by email and as we said we've all had the experience of community standards not been effective. We've had parents and children in who gave accounts of waiting days and days for, you know, mm. very harmful content to be withdrawn. And that's really, I suppose, the crux. So we're not trying to curtail freedom of speech. We're not trying to curtail advertisement that is lawful. Mm. But what we are trying to do is take away the, I suppose, the negativity, but not just the negativity, the harmful piece that can happen in social media, because we know it can be a very dark space. Well, that's the direction you're going in. It's uh, the right direction. Hopefully it's the first step in the right direction. Uh, We have to leave it there for the moment, though. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, as always. Neve Smith, Fianna Fáil TD, for Kevin Monaghan, who's the chair of uh, the Oireachtas Joint Committee on Tourism, Culture, Arts, Sport and Media. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, the Association of uh, Catholic Priests says it's been fielding complaints uh, from priests uh, and indeed former priests uh, for that matter about bishops. 
there's a remarkable statement, in fact, uh, from uh, the ACP, and uh, let's talk uh, through some of its content and, indeed, the complaints that the Association has been receiving. Father Roy Donovan, spokesperson for the Association of Catholic Priests, joins us on the line now. Good morning to you, Roy. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. And I think you probably want to say from the outset, as you do in your statement, that the vast majority of priests treat you fairly and with respect. Uh, yeah, and, and the treatment of most bishops, I think, uh, and they treat priests very well, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, but there are but problems. There are real situations now and over the last number of years where a number of priests have been treated very badly by bishops. And I suppose, you see, as a priest, we have no contract of employment. Um, we have no definition of our work. So if you're to take um, employer-employee terms, there's a massive space that allows uh, some bishops to think that they have a right to do what they like in that kind of um, wide space. Like if if somebody in a workplace and they're part of a trade union have a difficulty, they can go to the trade union and the trade union will uh, accompany them and uh, work through with them their situation. Um, we have nobody to, go to turn to uh, if you're in difficulty as a priest. There's no process, there's no um, um, procedures. And um, so mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of priests have been left at the whim of the bishop. And unfortunately, some bishops have taken advantage of priests' uh, vulnerability in these situations. Indeed, you say you have complaints of bishops dominating every encounter that they have with priests. Uh, the complaints range from issues to do with accommodation to being forced out of the priesthood or the opposite of uh, that, uh, not being allowed to retire until they reach 75, which you say is having an impact on mental and physical health. Gay priests are treated differently in some parishes than they are in others and unfairly in some parishes. Some take leave and they're not allowed to return to their ministry as uh, the case may be. Uh, Other priests are are moved into parishes uh, that they don't want to go to against their will. And the list of complaints uh, really look like a bad workplace uh, with very bad terms and conditions uh, in the sense that this is uh, allowed to happen in the first instance. Yes, uh, as I say, we don't have a trade union um, and as an association of priests, that's why we were formed to um, to defend priests, stand up for priests and uh, that, that's one of the, the things we do and, and that's why at the AGM um, we, we have put out these examples and we hope to discuss them and I would encourage priests to come along and to talk talk about these complaints at the AGM and I would hope as well by making this statement that it will encourage maybe priests who are in difficult situations that there is help and that we can find ways um, to get the help they need. Right, to protect them from the bishops. Or the or, or or the archbishops. I mean, it does sound yeah. it sounds yeah. crazy, doesn't it? I mean, uh, it's at odds with uh, the very ethos of the role of a bishop or an archbishop. Yes, and uh, you know the vision is there that we're a brotherhood and we take a vow of obedience. But that's all very fine. And uh, but in the last couple of decades with child abuse. Um, there's a huge distrust of, of bishops by a lot of priests, and there's a, I would say, on the ground, 
in Ireland, there's a massive distrust of bishops. Mm. So we have a Senate coming up and a lot of work has to be done to build trust. Are you talking about two or three individuals uh, who really aren't suited to to the role that they have? Of of being bishops, Mm. yes. And and, and that's another question. What kind of um, courses do bishops do when they become bishops? Do they do anything on human relations, on how to manage workplace um, situations? Uh, Do they have any training? Mm. Um, I think all that is uh, questionable. Mm. And and some, you know, have been parish priests, but once you become a parish priest, or once you become a bishop, then you you, you move to the other end of uh, the other side, and you take on, you're defending the institution. And uh, and you see, that's another difficulty, that uh, a lot of priests are in very difficult situations at the moment. Mm. Running a couple of parishes, they're much older, don't have the same energy and the whole system that we're part of is dead at the moment it's it's over and uh, you know in the association we say we should be facing reality that we need to create uh, new systems there's a lot of issues that we need to face into and we're not facing into right uh, when you train to be a priest is human relations any part of your training it was never part of my training anyway and, uh, you know, that, that's all uh, very new for, for a lot of priests, I would say. And, and also, I would say that, you know, the idea of a trade union mm. uh, for bishops and priests would be seen as a no-no, which is very unfortunate because trade unions uh, um, have been the fabric of our society and they have furthered uh, the, the dignity of workers and their... And, uh, well, say strengthened their conditions and uh, workplace conditions and mm. the quality of life that they've added. Um, so we do need those. We need some new structures uh, between priests and, and bishops that are clear on both sides mm. on how you resolve conflicts and difficulties. Well, no doubt we're in a uh, time of transformation, uh, in a sense, uh, as uh, a society, socially speaking. Uh, it's not that long ago since. Priests were elevated uh, way up uh, the social hierarchy. Yes. Uh, uh, back mm-hmm. uh, back back to a time when we used to talk about our, our betters uh, and so on. Uh, I suppose doctors would, would have been in the same position. Uh, so uh, I mean, uh, just the way the world worked, and now that's changed. I think a lot of us see that uh, as being silly in many senses. Doctors and priests back then were quite often very abrupt. Many of them were very nice, uh, but uh, there was no onus a- a- on anybody to act in a-, a certain way, which would be the case today, I think, outside of uh, the priesthood, uh, as-, as an example, uh, where we would think, well, um, you're equal to me uh, uh, and I respect yes. you as a, a priest. Uh, so that's sort of out the window. But I, I-, I take it that, for a-, a large part, you're talking about older men who have been priests all their lives. Well, but I'm, I'm also talking about some of the younger priests. Um, mm. I, I've, we've heard of complaints from parishioners of the ways in which some of the younger priests, their attitudes of, you know, that they're uh, caught up in some kind of a, a system of the past, you know, where they're wanting to hold on to status and, you know, all the dressing up and all mm. that kind of gear and all that stuff. You know, what you're talking about there, saying it's gone, but there seems to be a resurgence of it among some of the younger priests. Really? And mm. Yeah. And, uh, and and assuming authority, and that there's only one way of um, going about things. And um, 
you know, so as you say, human relations, <laughs> where uh, a lot of it is learned, uh, a lot of priests mm. have been very good at learning it, and, may, you know, that we've all made a lot of mistakes and we've learned from it, and we've learned to, as you say, that we're all equals, and that, uh, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of um, status attached to to the, being a priest, and, uh or the, the power that went with it. Um, so thanks be to God. You, you know, I mm, mean, even mm. in some dioceses, they're still continuing to make guys monsignors and canons, mm. which is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, Vatican II wanted to get rid of all that. Mm, mm. Uh, so we have a lot of stuff to face up to in the Irish Church. Okay. And to, uh, and would, I be jumping, would I be jumping the gun? Um, and the impression I honestly have reading between the lines, I really found your statement to be remarkable given... Uh, the amount of complaints, but uh, how serious each of the complaints uh, seem to be in their own right. Uh, would I be jumping the gun to read between the lines and uh, wonder if uh, there's bullying taking place within the priesthood? Yes, that that, um, that that would be true. Yes, right. And what kind of impact is what kind of impact is that having on individuals? Are priests? Uh, seeking help, in need of help, in need of counselling, uh, are, are they anxious? Are they suffering from anxiety? Do they need uh, uh, medicated help? Uh, what, what's the upshot of all of that? I, I would say some priests, their health has broken down um, because of it. Uh, you know, that they have lost um, all sense of their own um, value and worth. And I, w- I would say that um, it has... Um, um, you know, some have been so compliant, they've, they've given in and, you know, they've allowed the bishop to do whatever he thinks is best for them, which is not necessarily what they, the priest would think is best for themselves, but what the bishop thinks is best. And uh, all of that has a um, huge uh, negative impact. Some have left, uh, you know, there's been quite a number of guys who left the priesthood as well, you know, so... Um, um, and, a, and a number who have been put out of it as well without um, the process of a uh, ongoing um, being consultation and being treated with dignity yeah. as a human being. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you're not planning to form a, a trade union, but are you hoping to be able to find a, a forum or a, a way of bringing these complaints to the hierarchy? Well, I think um, at the AGM next Wednesday in the Radisson and at Lone, it's up to maybe guys themselves to, to talk out and to speak their mind. As Pope Francis had told us, to speak out, speak boldly, and um, see what, what do what do the priests on the ground consider the way forward. Mm, okay, well... Uh, perhaps uh, we can hear back from you after that, uh, but uh, yep. we'll, we, we, we'd like to. Uh, it's uh, it's quite shocking, uh, uh, and uh, I don't often say that, but I am uh, very taken aback, uh, not just by your statement, but uh, after speaking to you as well, I thought maybe that I had been reading between the lines, adding up two and two and coming up with five or something like that, uh, but there's obviously very serious problems that you're very concerned about uh, and others, uh, and uh, I think uh, people would like to hear back from you if you would come back to us after that, AGM, Roy. Thank thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Father Roy Donovan, spokesperson for the Association of Catholic Priests. Let me come to some of uh, the comments uh, coming to us. Uh, John Androhada listening to Neve Smith talking about uh, the online control side of things. 
Uh, John says he heard me saying that I accept all cookies. Uh, John says, I don't think you realise that every one of those cookies is taking information from you to sell on to other companies. Cookies are a great tool, but they do need to be regulated more. Uh, and if you could regulate the cookies more, that would really make the companies fall into line. Thanks uh, for that, John. Yeah, yeah no, uh, I like that. <laughs> I like that they know what I'm interested in and that they give me ads about things that I'm interested in. I don't really look at the ads, I have to say, but if I do, you know, if I'm looking for a power saw and ads come up for power saws, maybe I find a bargain uh, instead of seeing something uh, for something that I've absolutely no interest in. Anyway, uh, another uh, message uh, from somebody on WhatsApp uh, who says, every time I turn on the show, Michael is talking about COVID. I wish he would put the same amount of interest into talking about climate change as it is one of the most pressing issues of our time. They say they are not anti-vax or anything. They just think that there are more issues that are more uh, dangerous uh, and more um, interesting uh, on this planet uh, and uh, we will be talking about uh, climate change uh, a little bit later on and indeed uh, the commitments made uh, in terms of methane. Stay with us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Allowing children uh, to mix uh, with uh, other children uh, if uh, one child has not been vaccinated and the other has uh, is one thing, uh, but uh, there certainly has to be child protection issues uh, in terms of contact sport, and uh, that's why uh, some children have been told uh, that they can participate in some sports uh, for the sake of uh, child protection and keeping children who have been vaccinated safe from those who have not been vaccinated, and indeed uh, the families of uh, those children who have been vaccinated. Padre Bean is calling this discrimination, and he wants it uh, to be reversed. Uh, and uh, Peter Tobin, Ain2 TD from Mead West, joins us now. A very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, how do you figure it's discrimination? Well, discrimination is defined in law, and it's defined um, in the dictionary. And when you say to one human being, one citizen of this country, that your civil rights are denied to you, and that you're, uh, you can't participate in a particular uh, sport, if you say that because of their race, of their religion, mm. of their sexuality, um, and of uh, whether or not they have a vaccine pass. No, 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 no. Um, it, <laughs> That's it, not it in law. That's not in law. Well, if, if you look up the dictionary, to discriminate is to say to one individual that you can participate and to another that you can't participate. Yeah, if you're and a threat to one person, uh, there's a question of uh, child protection, isn't there? Yes, but yeah. uh, a person who hasn't got uh, COVID is not a threat to anybody. Um, well, perhaps not. Uh, but uh, so, so, the chances so of catching COVID, you're, you're, the chances the of ca- the, the chances of catching COVID if you're not vaccinated uh, is far higher, and the chances of transmitting it is far higher if you have COVID and you've not been vaccinated. So what you're saying is that a person who has been vaccinated can transmit the illness to another individual. Um, so therefore, the vaccine pass doesn't guarantee you protection against catching the illness. But what would guarantee you against catching the illness would be a antigen test. An antigen test would be a far superior way because mm. it would actually identify who has the illness and who is potentially a threat to another individual mm. and who doesn't have the illness. 
and who is not a threat to an individual. But mm. the argument that you're putting forward is that a person... Well, it's not just the argument that I'm putting forward. Is, it, it, is, uh, can be discriminated against in relation to sports. Well, it's and not, discrimin- it's not, it's not discrimination. It's protection against somebody uh, who is at a higher risk uh, of a, a deadly disease. Uh, and uh, the argument that you're putting forward is antigen testing, if you could trust the antigen testing. Uh, and uh, it's not just me who's making this argument. As you know, I think the Tanish said as much to you about the level of protection that vaccinated people get in the doll yesterday. Uh, the vaccines uh, do reduce transmission. Uh, they don't eliminate it, but they do reduce it. And that's one of the reasons why it's in um, anyone's interest uh, to get vaccinated, um, because you reduce the risk of you uh, transmitting the virus to other people, as well as considerably uh, reducing the risk of you being hospitalised, needing intensive care, um, or dying as a consequence of the virus. Um, uh, but obviously these are decisions that individuals have to make and parents have to make uh, with respect to their children. Yeah, so why not decide the to get vaccinated? Is, is right in relation to uh, the vaccine. The vaccine does protect against uh, the illness. It does mm. protect against hospitalisation mm. and it, it protects against ICU and mm. also death. Absolutely mm. it does. And no doubt about that. Tra- but, but, it's less but Michael, if you can give me a second just mm. to have a, 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 a sentence or two in this, mm. it will be wonderful. So what we're saying, what's happening at the moment is that children as young as 12 years old are being prevented from playing things like basketball, mm. uh, volleyball um, and, and other sports. Some people, some of those children at that age are being prevented against going to school tours. Mm. Now, obesity is also a killer in this country. Um, the, the idea that we're othering people, that we're segregating people, that we're discriminating against children is absolutely very, very serious. No, one person and, cannot and, and give just, another just, person let my, obesity. Let me get my sentence in here, Michael, please. So what, like, if, if they had a deadly, deadly disease, you could make an argument for that. But this, what is happening at the moment is that these children are being segregated and othered without actually having COVID at all. Well, you don't not, know that. It's not on the basis of COVID that they're being segregated because if that was the case, a test would be used to find out whether or not have COVID. But they're being, they're being segregated on the basis of not having a vaccine pass. Yeah. Now, well, other you countries, don't know that. Denmark and, people, and Germany, just, people, just briefly, other countries such as Denmark and Germany, for example, haven't introduced this level of discrimination. They have introduced antigen testing and they have a third less cases of COVID than this country. Right. So it seems that the system that you, that you support and that you're arguing for here at the moment in the radio is not having the desired effect. Right. Let's hear what else uh, the Tonnage just said to you about what might happen in future. In relation to the indoor sports uh, issue, this has come up um, a couple of times. A number of deputies raised it earlier on as well. And I have committed to um, uh, seeking a further examination of those regulations um, because my understanding is that uh, where you have a mixed group of children, some vaccinated, some not, it is possible for them to train and do activities in pods. Okay, so I suppose um, if you have 10 children who are playing basketball uh, on a national basis, on average, I suppose you'd have one child who's not being vaccinated. So they could play basketball on their own in a pod and nine children could play together. How would that suit you? from what the, the Thomas has said there that they're actually going to reverse this I think that I Oh you said in pods No, no, no the, the, what, what the, the Thomas has said two things if, if you listen properly to him Michael he actually says he's going to revisit this issue Yeah uh, and I spoke I spoke to uh, Sports Ireland yesterday and I you know and I spoke to bas- the, the basketball clubs people are outraged and shocked uh, that this is actually happening. But people uh, will be outraged and shocked if they think that non-vaccinated people, children are going to be playing with their vaccinated be, children. What most 
reasonable people would be shocked that a child can sit in a classroom without a vaccine pass for six hours a day, but when they go to a a, a big hall to play basketball for one hour a day, Mm. that they're actually banned in doing that. Well, it seems to me that the Taunashi was saying that they won't be banned, uh, that they'll be put down at the other end of the hall to play on on their own. Uh, And and there's there's a a vote to take place... uh, on Thursday, is it, uh, on uh, the extension of uh, the restrictions? Uh, you're, you... you're confusing two things there, Michael, for a start. The law currently allows for pods um, of children to play sports if they haven't got a vaccine pass. Uh, but if what, what's happening is, is that things like basketball, volleyball and indoor sports, it's just not practical mm. because the teams are bigger than six uh, for that to happen. What the Tonish is actually saying is that he is going to look at reversing this because you know most people would actually think the idea of saying to a 12-year-old, mm. you know, get out, you can't play with the rest no, of the children here. No, most people would say... Most people would say... Most people would say that their parents should protect them and get them vaccinated and protect themselves. Uh, What about the legislation? What about the legislation? What about the legislation which will extend the use of COVID passes and masks and so on? Uh, will Will you vote in favour of the extension of that? I won't be voting in favour of anything that includes a level of discrimination against any any citizen. I honestly believe, Michael, that people are equal and that people should should be treated equally. And when you see a, a law which actually says that people are not equal and that people shouldn't be treated equally, okay. I have to vote against that. Right, well, we heard uh, from uh, Dr. Ian Cunahan from uh, the Lord's Hospital this morning telling us that the vast majority of people in hospital putting terrible pressure on the hospital are people who have not been vaccinated uh, and he wishes that they would get vaccinated. Uh, We'll hear just a little bit from the Minister for Health now in relation to that vote. We stand up in this House and we say we care about healthcare workers, but many are going to vote against the measures that will protect those healthcare workers. We stand up and we say we need the COVID pass in place, but many are going to stand up and vote against the very thing required to keep that COVID pass in place. That's the reality. We all care. I know we all care about our healthcare system. We all care about our healthcare workers. But our healthcare workers need legislative protection. Men and women in this country who could die from COVID need legislative protection. The ability to keep our economy open, the ability to keep open the very pubs and restaurants that you're talking about, deputies, to be able to do that, we need regulations in place. And what this motion is about tonight is allowing those motions, those regulations continue for the next three months. And none of this is easy. I appreciate none of this is easy. None of us want to be having this debate. Would you see any sense in what the Minister was saying, Peter Toby? I think most people will will hear the hypocrisy in the Minister's voice, especially about healthcare workers. Right now, there are 2,500 healthcare workers who are out because of COVID and because they haven't had a booster jab. Because over the last three or four weeks, the Minister has been pondering at his own pace whether or not healthcare workers should get a booster jab. We in AIM2 have been calling for healthcare workers to get a booster jab because many of those healthcare workers are falling off an immunity cliff. They had the, the, their first uh, and, and second at the start of the year, and now the immunity has started to wane uh, as a result. Like It is incredible that a minister uh, would state that he is looking after the best interests of healthcare workers, while at the moment, for the lack of a booster jab, 
2,500 healthcare workers are at home with COVID. The hypocrisy, and he's talking about keeping the health service going. There's a million people on the health service waiting list at the moment. There's, there has been literally, the dial hasn't moved in terms of ICU beds and emergency beds, which are the front line of COVID. And indeed, the same minister is looking to close the A&E and ICU beds in Navan Hospital. Mm. You know, it is impossible to take anything the minister said seriously. I heard in the speech he said yesterday, he said that the government's response to this crisis has been agile and it has been responsive. It has been anything but. In actual fact, he has implemented the, the big stick, the, the longest and most severe restrictions in Europe. Um, we have the highest level of vaccination rates in Europe, but they refuse to use simple tools such as antigen testing and extra hospital capacity, two tools that have worked enormously effective in countries like Germany and Denmark who have far less cases of COVID and have have been able to open their their economy and society far more and haven't had to implement COVID. Okay. All right. I've got to leave there. I'm out of time. But thank you indeed, as always, for your time on the programme this morning. That's saying to founder and leader, Patrick Tobin, a TD from Middle West. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now back to how we might save the planet. Ireland is ready to play its part. We have enacted legislation to put a legally binding target of reducing our emissions by 2030 to 51% below 2018 levels. We will reach climate neutrality by 2050. We are working closely with our European Union partners in the green transition that will make Europe the first climate-neutral continent. Michal Martin, the Taoiseach, uh, speaking at uh, COP26, committing to that EU-US deal to cut methane emissions by 30%. The difference of opinions that's coming out there between uh, Minister Ryan, uh, the Taoiseach, the Taoiseach in relation to the cull of cattle in this country and the, the, the effects this is going to have on rural Ireland and on um, agriculture in total, um, where the dairy, dairy and suckler herd seems like um, the experts that, that the Quango that Eamon Ryan put in place in this country are making it quite clear to the Special Advisory Council that there will be a call on cattle in this country. No, there won't. Well, not in the overall numbers according to the Taunashtip. Well, we anticipate seeing over the next number of years uh, is herd stabilisation. Uh, some farmers may increase um, the number of animals they keep. Others may decrease them because they decide to diversify into other areas, plant, plant trees, engage in carbon farming, farming to other things. But we expect in the round to see herd stabilisation. It's staying at roughly uh, the same size as that now. And we believe that uh, a 10% reduction in methane, and it is 10%, by the way, not 30%, a 10% reduction in bovine methane can be achieved uh, over a 10-year period. So the commitment is uh, to reduce methane by 30%, but we're going to do it by 10%, and uh, there'll be no change in the overall size of uh, the national herd. Some farmers may end up growing trees instead. Some may end up with more animals, but overall the impact will be to stabilise numbers. This work, stabilising the national herd. Would he please stop using misleading language? That's like reconfiguration of the health service. It's outrageous and you're cutting the farmers of Ireland by coming out with that type of statement. Stabilisation means a cut. And call it what it is, Tanisht. And excuse me. Call it... 
That's uh, Michael Healy-Ray there. Now, uh, let's talk to Pat McCormick, who's uh, the president of uh, the ICMSA, the Irish Creamery Milk Suppliers Association. Good morning to you, Pat, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, which part of uh, the gobbledygook, as Michael Healy-Ray described it there, do you believe? Are we looking at 10 or 30% uh, of a, a cut in emissions? And do you believe uh, that uh, when the Tonister says that uh, the national herd will be stabilised, that that's a way of saying the national herd will be cut. No, I don't. I believe to stabilise something is to, start, is to, is to maintain it. Um, whereas it is, I don't accept that, that to cut the national herd in Ireland would be the right thing to do because we are the most efficient globally and, and within Europe and indeed globally uh, as regards food production from an environmental impact perspective. So we believe that stabilisation of the herd is, and he said himself, that some can grow and some will reduce numbers. And ultimately, the number will stay the same. Uh, and that's 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 a commitment that you know that the Taoiseach gave mm. in the doll as well when he said there wouldn't be a cut in the national herd to be a last resort. I mean, we have to look at at the options to meet our targets. So mm. potentially, it comes some way to meeting those targets. Thomas to talk about a ten percent reduction in methane. Uh, you know, we have to embrace the science that's out there, uh, and we have to embrace the science that's been this laboratory at this stage. Uh, and by that I mean, you know, the, the various different additives that can be put to the animal's diet to reduce the methane emissions. Uh, so we when? cannot. When, uh, when might that happen? Because uh, we're talking about a, a ten or a thirty percent cut, depending on whether you listen to the Thonager or or the Taoiseach, uh over uh, the course of the next number of years on what is currently the rate of emissions. Maybe if the government put their shoulder to the wheel and supported the various companies that are, are trying these scientific trials uh, and, and uh, you know, we could deliver uh, far sooner than we will. Uh, it's probably a number of years away, but as I say, if the government put their shoulder to the wheel, maybe it should be only months, a matter of months away um, where we could reduce methane uh, and emissions and, and at the same time maintain the less herd. But if you look at, at the various... But the planet is dying and this has to be done by 2030, doesn't it? The planet is dying, and you know, if the mm. planet is dying and it's a global issue, why why aren't Russia, China, and India involved? Given that they 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 have one third of the emissions uh, alone globally, does that mean uh, that we can't do it? We can't cut uh, emissions by thirty percent over the next nine years, let alone ten percent. Um, I, I don't accept that. We can cut emissions without cutting numbers. Uh, if we embrace the best farming practices, if we embrace the Tagus net curve, uh, the net curve that's out there. Uh, but it all will come at a cost, the cost of the primary producer. We mm. see that with low emission story spreaders and we see it with how uh, nutrients are stored and managed and spread. And, uh, you know, the primary producer will need will need assistance. And unfortunately, when we had budget day recently, they seem to forget about the challenges that face, face us from an environmental point of view and from an agricultural point of view. Mm. I mean, if you were to implement it to the letter of the law, um, the, the targets that are there and that Michal Martin mentioned yesterday are 51% and if you were to implement that uh, flat rate across the sectors you, you wouldn't have an agricultural sector you'd have 100,000 people uh, out of work in, in the rural economies But that's of, what they're talking of, about that's what they're talking about implementing it to the letter of the laws you put it uh, and if it's not done uh, well there won't be any planet to protect uh, uh, and maybe what you're suggesting is that we should take the same sort of uh, approach uh, as India the Indian Prime Minister uh, committing uh, to reducing emissions to zero by 2070 No I'm, I'm not suggesting that 
what I what I am suggesting to you though is that we are a food island. We're very efficient from an environmental perspective as regards what we do, and that there's far more ground there to be to be, to be made up in in a period of time, and a reasonably short period of time, and that we need to see government funding to support the various adaptations that are required at farm level, but also to support the various scientific research that's going on mm. to deliver to deliver lower emissions, lower methane. As you said, though, that's going to take a, a number of years. Are you concerned uh, at being a member of the European Union, given that this has been driven by the Commission? Look, uh, I mean, I suppose what I would be challenging and what I've done in all interviews yesterday, and I'll do it again today, is I'm challenging the European Union to stop these trade talks with the markets or countries that haven't participated uh, and that don't have any consideration for their environmental impact uh, as regards beef, produ- beef production in particular. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I think Brazil is signing up to this uh, agreement, is it not? And also uh, to uh, end deforestation. deforestation. Yeah, well, we, we, we need to see the delivery of that because at the moment mm. I think it's every, it's at every minute or every second. Okay. Uh, they're, that they're, that, that might go both ways. I'm sure the Brazilians are saying we need to see uh, if uh, the European uh, countries uh, will do what they're saying they're doing. And, and, maybe... and right across Europe, and I'm in, mm. in contact with with various different leaders right across Europe through the European Milk Board. Well, maybe, and, we'll, uh, we, maybe we'll hear what, what our representative is saying, what our leader is saying. Here's uh, the president of the European Commission. We have to cut emissions fast. And methane is one of the gases we can cut fastest. Doing that will immediately slow down climate change because we all know methane is a powerful greenhouse gas. Roughly 30% of global warming since the Industrial Revolution is due to methane emissions. Methane is 80 times more global warming than CO2. And today, global methane emissions grow faster than at any time in the past. So cutting back on methane emissions is one of the most effective things we can do to reduce near-term global warming and keep 1.5 degrees Celsius. It is the lowest hanging fruit. The lowest hanging fruit. You might win the argument with me, Pat, but I don't think you're going to win it with Ursula von der Leyen. Yeah, I don't accept that. I mean, the, the reality of it is, and, and I'm sure she knows as well, that we do need to cut, uh, and she has clearly outlined that we need to cut methane gases. But, you know, there are, there are different ways of cutting methane gases than just simply going out and smashing livestock numbers. And maybe that's the point that some politicians, I'm not accusing her of that, but that's the point that maybe some politicians uh, aren't embracing, uh, that there is opportunity out there uh, to change the dietary and, and to put in dietary additives uh, that will reduce uh, methane. Uh, they're, they're done in Holland and the, the Dutch and the Danes have them uh, in far greater research than what we have here in this country. But we, we are catching up. And uh, I do believe that in a short period of time, will be in a position with a stable herd uh, to reduce the emissions and to reduce them significantly. Okay. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Pat McCormick is uh, the president of the ICMSA, the Irish Creamery Milk Suppliers Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. The biggest fear of all when it comes uh, to the spread of uh, COVID-19 is outbreaks in nursing homes. Uh, There's been an average of 100 new cases a week 
Every week over the course of uh, the last four months, uh, on Monday, the Health Protection Surveillance Centre was saying that there were some 1,751 cases recorded in nursing homes since uh, the 27th of June. Let's speak uh, to Sarah Lennon, who's Executive uh, Director of SAGE Advocacy. And uh, very good morning to you, Sarah, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, and ultimately, with uh, the number of new cases, a number of people have uh, passed away. 106 deaths uh, apparently recorded uh, since the end of uh, June. Uh, it's shocking to think we're back there again. Morning, Michael. Yes, it is, it is shocking to think that we're back there again. And I suppose with the, the numbers trending generally in the country the way they have over the last um, couple of weeks, people would be feeling, a, I suppose, a case of deja vu. Um, and, and here we go again coming into the winter period. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of concern out there. Okay. Uh, and I, I take it that's to do with age and underlying illnesses uh, as well. I think the vast majority of people uh, who are in hospital are over 65. That's right. So we're looking at about, only about, well, I say only, but about 20% of all infections are among our over 65s, but about half of our hospitalisations. So I suppose we've, we've known this all along, but it, it just brings it into um, to very clear contrast for us that, um, you know, while the infection numbers are going up um, and while our, our over 65s may be among the better protected through the vaccination programme, for example, it still um, mm. hits that population the hardest in terms of hospitalisation, illness and unfortunately in terms of mortality as well. OK, maybe we can talk about under 65s in nursing homes in a, a moment. Uh, but is it a case uh, that uh, people who are resident in nursing homes who are over 65 have received their booster at this stage? Yes, we understand now the majority of, of those who wanted the booster have received it by now, um, which is, of course will be a, a source of, of enormous comfort. Um, and I think we have what we have to say is while COVID-19 is with us and, and none of us, I suppose, know what, 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 what the future is in that regard, um, but while COVID-19 is with us, um, while you know people in nursing homes have had the vaccine booster, this is as, as safe as they're going to be in terms of, of having the vaccine on board. There are obviously numerous other things we can do in terms of infection control but um, I suppose none of our family members none of our the residents we're talking to want to see for example the visitor restrictions being brought in as a sort of a an automatic reaction to what we're seeing mm. in the community. I think that would be um, one of the biggest fears that's being expressed to us. I'm sure that is uh, the case uh, because uh, it's your husband's home or your wife's home uh, and you're not living together because they need nursing home care or your father or whatever the relationship is, as uh, the case may be. And if you're not allowed to go into the nursing home, you can't see somebody who is as close as that to you. Uh, what about the idea of COVID passes, though? I think Nursing Homes Ireland would support the idea of COVID passes uh, for visitors and mandatory vaccination for staff. Um, so I suppose in terms of the COVID passes, that's definitely something that seems to be coming into the fo- into focus now. So, you know, we may see an announcement of some sort on that. I think, you know, you've made, made a very important point there. Um, you know, this is people's homes um, at this point in time in their lives. Um, if an older person chooses to have an unvaccinated person into their home, it would always be their choice, um, as it would be to, to not allow an unvaccinated person is in. But because of the nature of nursing home care, um, it, it's congregated living and, and it comes with, I suppose, all of these compromises and, and all of these challenges. Um, and uh, the COVID pass has become a very common um, part of, of our everyday life. 
Um, so it would seem to be, you know, that, 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 that the powers that be will follow that um, logic into, into nursing homes. I think what they've also said is though that where there's a compassionate reason. Um, and I think it's always very important that, that the rules have um, flexibility. We've always called for, for that and yeah. um, to make sure that we weren't being too rigidly um, applying rules where maybe someone's at end of life, for example. Yeah. Um, that, that, that there's a little bit of common sense uh, attached to what needs to be obviously very stringent um, infection controls as well. Okay. Uh, and it is a congregated setting uh, and it's uh, impossible uh, in a, a nursing home uh, to keep your distance, uh, I'm mm-hmm. sure, no matter how hard you try. Uh, and we're speaking for the most part uh, about vulnerable people and a lot of uh, the residents uh, in nursing homes are under the age of 65. Apparently there's uh, around 1,300 people uh, living in nursing homes who are under that age uh, and they won't be receiving the boosters, will they? No, they're not, definitely not in the in the rollout of boosters in the first instance. It was the over 65s and then over the over 80s in the community. So I suppose there's been some, some movement in terms of healthcare workers receiving boosters. Um, and I think there was some information today that NIAC might be making recommendations around um, under 60s who have significant medical conditions, for example. Um, and, you know, once again, the under 65s in nursing homes seem to to be the forgotten population in, in, in many regards. I mean, you know, we don't have time probably today to get into yeah, why those people are in the nursing homes in the or, first place. Or if they should be. Yeah. Or if they should be. Yeah, exactly. But we can't forget that they're, it's about the environment being risky as much as it is about the age profile being risky. And I think we have to make sure that both sides of that um, conversation are, are, are understood. Okay, we'll uh, leave it there for the moment, Sarah. Thank you indeed for joining us though today. Thank you. That's uh, Sarah Lennon, Executive uh, Director of uh, Sage Advocacy. Now, uh, to finish today, we'll bring you some more of the comments. Uh, Paul was in touch with us on WhatsApp. He says he feels sorry for responsible business owners who have gone above and beyond the call of duty to implement COVID guidelines. Uh, They're checking vaccine certs and so on, but there are others who are ignoring the need for certs in some places and social distancing is non-existent. He, He knows of one place, he says, that his friend had chosen, who had chosen not to be vaccinated frequently, and his friend says that depending on what staff members are working, he can sit indoors or outdoors, uh, whether he has a cert or not. Well, thanks uh, for telling us about that, Paul. That's all we have time for. Got to leave you for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.